0: All right. Well, good evening. We're feeling extremely quarrelsome, I think, up here, and <laughs> we'll try and pretend we really dislike each other. Um, it's just, I should mention that here is further proof of the takeover of the world by argumentative Indians, and um, it's very nice to have the opportunity to talk to uh, talk to Amartya today, and. I'm sure that, unlike the liberals Paul mentioned, he will be able to defend his own ideas, but I'm certainly going to ask him to do so. What we're going to do is just... I thought you should know a little bit about this really extraordinary man uh, before we tear him apart. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, Amartya was born at Shantini Ketan. Shantini Ketan, um, uh, you may know, is the um, university that was founded on the property of Rabindranath Tagore, the Nobel Laureate for Literature, um, and um, is an extraordinary kind of university in, in India that people have lessons under trees and, and it, it has a very kind of um, different ethic. What I remember, one of the things I remember about it is that at the heart of it, or there's what, where Tagore used to live that there are three houses around different sides of the same courtyard. One is in a kind of Japanese style and one is in a Western style and one is an Indian style and Tagore used to simply go like this and the whole household would have to move from one house to another but it was just across the same courtyard. Um, So this kind of triple self of Rabindranath Tagore, it seems to me is in a way exceeded by Amartya Sen whose polymathic abilities are deeply irritating <laughs> to, to, to those of us less gifted. He, he is a Sanskritist. Um, he has spent much of his life studying not only economics, but also mathematics and physics, and indeed had to, at certain points in his life, decide whether he wanted to be a Sanskritist, a mathematician, a physicist, or an econo- uh, or economist. And I know exactly how that feels. <laughs> um, and, and how difficult a choice that must have been. And he has, you know, of late managed to, um, in a way, use this diversity of self to write a couple of really quite, I think, very important books, uh, The Argumentative Indian and now Identity and Violence. Um, books which take on some of the big subjects of our time, such as where ideas of democracy, pluralism, tolerance come from and whether they are indeed Western ideas or whether you can see them having roots elsewhere in the world as well. And and certainly his argument is that you can see in the Indian tradition, a tradition of argument, of discourse, of tolerance, of multiplicity, of the understanding of pluralism, uh, which has nothing to do with Uh, ideas imported from the West and so to see these as being exclusively Western ideas is a mistake. We'll go into that a little bit more Um, and we will go into his thoughts about the relationship extremely central to the way I think we're all thinking at the moment, the relationship between identity politics um, and violence in in the world we now live in. Um, Of course, migration is a big, has to be a theme when looking at Amartya's life, I mean, he, he, you, uh, you spent some of your childhood in Burma,
1: is that right? That's right, three yeah, years yeah. in Burma, in Mandalay.
0: Yes, so where you, at the age of three, became close friends with George Orwell. Um, <laughs> 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 um, um, and then immediately left. <laughs> um, then there's a passage in, in England, um, including um, being Master of Trinity College Cambridge, and now, in, and now in America, at are well actually back and forth to America, but, but presently in America at, at Harvard. So, I mean, it's clear to me, I've always felt, that people who have that experience of transcultural migration clearly have to think perhaps more than others about the question of identity because the way in which the self conceives itself has traditionally a lot to do with Place uh, with roots, you know, with, with the place you come from, the language you speak, the community in which you find yourself, the customs of that community, and migrants lose all that, or often do, and have to, in a way, question what, wherein their identity lies. So let's just start with that and ask you, what, if anything, was the consequence for you of migration, and what did it make you think about self, and yourself?
1: Well, it certainly made me very aware of a couple of things, that there are lots of people with whom i friend, very friendly, going back to my age three, not perhaps George Orwell, but uh, others around, um, who had a different identity in, in in the sense that if they were to define themselves as a Burmese, they would look, you know, they would be very different. And yet, at the same time, we did share a, a lot of identities uh, together, not just the identity of human being, but being concerned with usual things uh, where you might be able to get a good ice cream uh, and, you know, these uniting factors which uh, give us a different way of looking at it. So that was one concern. The other concern, of course, that the, uh, you mentioned about India and democracy and so on I think uh, my thesis in some way is even more ambitious and even beginning to disagree with you to say that I think they have really uh, arisen almost everywhere in the world the idea that somehow participatory governance what Mill called government by discussion, that's a very general idea and I think in India what is very special is that, and this is where the verbosity of Indians come in I mean, we, after all, hold the record of the longest speech ever in the United Nations, nine hours non-stop. Yes. No. It was, was Krishna Menon. yes, that's right. Uh, yeah, no, every one of these. I mean, Mahabharata is often compared with the epics. Um, Iliad and Odyssey, Mahabharata is seven times Iliad and Odyssey put together. Yes. If it can be said in two pages, you mustn't say it in a line. True. So I think, given that, there's a lot written on the subject of Secularism, democracy, and so on, which are general thought going back to the Buddhist period, the the you know the the early Hindu period, as well as after the Mughals, particularly the Mughals, a lot of discussion. So, in, in and Tagore, to whom you referred, had this wonderful passage saying the idea of India mm-hmm. militates against a strong sense of separateness from one from from other people. So, in some ways, that was very much part of the thing that that came up, both in my family as well as in school. And having the experience of going to Burma and then traveling within India, of course, and then eventually going to Britain, that kind of solidified more. So, I think it played a very big part. Not so much in... I've never had a sense of a fragility of Indian culture that somehow acknowledging as anything else would immediately make my Indian identity go away. I mean, I think that is a completely invented problem. I but do you think
0: that the Indian, I mean, this question of the, the, the Indian identity, Yeah. isn't that itself not that, I mean, I mean, quite a recent invention? Um, that's to say, historically, there was no India. There was, there were a number of nations There, which often fought with each other, and even when the British, when the Mughals ran India, they never really controlled the whole place. And when the British ran India, they hardly ever controlled the whole place. And the Indian national idea, you could argue, is quite a recent one.
1: Well, I think now, and Paul would be very happy because I can disagree with you. Yes, go. I'll try to do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't think so. The first book on on India by Megasthenes is called Indica. What the hell was he writing about?
0: Well, he's writing about a idea. geographical area,
1: but Where is he writing about Geological a cultural area? Entity? He was describing these people to the Greeks. What do the Indians do? Mm-hmm. When in seventh century, e Jin, the Chinese visitor, after spending ten or eleven years in India, doing Sanskrit and also studying medicine, as it happened, went back. His last thought is a very pleasing one because he had met a lot of Indians. He said, "Have I come across anyone in India who does not admire China?" Now, this is quite interesting. Actually, the phrase was, have I encountered anyone in the five parts of India, five parts of one country, mm. that does not admire China? So I think he was noting diversity and yet saw a mm. unity. So 11th early. century, 10, 12, I think, A.D., certainly very early 11th century, um, the first and the first book, really serious book on India, which I think is probably the best book yet written on India, uh, is al biruni The Iranian traveller, what is called Tariq al-Hind, the history Mm -hmm. of India. That's all happening before the Norman conquest of Britain, I might point out. So there is a sense of Indian identity that Mm -hmm. is being seen by outsiders. And in fact, the whole term India, of course, is a foreigner's invention. Yes. In the sense that they had to signify it and they saw Indus as a river. Now happens to be mostly in Pakistan but they define that whole area as, as India. So I think in some ways the, how others see us have been a very important part of a kind of self-definition. Yes. This,
0: this is early multiculturalism yeah. from, the, from the 11th century. Yeah. Um, all right, let me just push it a little further. It seems to me if you look at the history of, let's say, India before the Mughal Empire. Yeah. Um, and again, India after, this, after the great Mughals at the period which British power is increasing, yeah. what you see is dissension. What you see is war um, and in fact one of the ways in which the British were able, as we know, to, to, to develop a hold over India was by renting themselves out in a mercenary way to fight for Prince A against Prince B um, and get land in return. You know, so. Yeah. Isn't there, isn't isn't this little utopian,
1: your notion? Um, I don't think it's utopian. It depends on what the notion is. Mm. If the notion is, was there a modern sense of nationalism on Mm. the part of Indian, Mm. I think that would be completely wrong to think. Mm. Absolutely Mm. not. Was there a lot of dissension? You know, I mean, there were things like that going on, War of Roses, Crimean War, hundreds of things in Europe and, 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 and within Britain too between the Scots and the English and, and, and so on, that didn't prevent a development of a sense of, 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 of the British. So I think it's a similar thing to look at. But if you, I think in a sense, Salman it's very good that you're focusing on, on, the, on the Mughal nation, because I think in some ways it's basically Akbar, 15, you know, late 16th century mm-hmm. that marks a kind of definitive view of an identity of India because he's, well, if you think about what are the projects that Akbar had this is the Muslim emperor, the grandson of Babur who established it uh, he is trying to get not only a unified calendar in my argumentative India and I discussed 32 major calendars going back to a long time with a lot of shared features from 4th century AD there is a principal meridian, uh, median, principal median defined, which runs through Ujjain. (coughs) And it's often not recognized, since we will get irritated by India being ten and a half hours different from here and five and a half from Britain. Well, it is still the same principal meridian. The Indian standard time is the Ujjain time, 6th and 4th century AD. Now, the calendars agreed on that, but otherwise the calendars were... Different, some solar, some lunar. Akbar tried to have a unified Indian calendar. You know, it's a, it would be the Tariq Elahi, mm-hmm. just as he also wanted a unified Indian religion, yes. which would draw on Islam. He didn't cease to be a Muslim, but he would draw on Islam, but also other, other religions, yes. not only Hinduism, but also Parsis and Jains and Jews. I mean, he had a, all of them. So there is that. But I think what I would emphasize is that. That's not happening in room, though. 14th century Amir Khusrau, a great Muslim scholar, very interested in Indian identity. What did the Hindus do, and how we can think of a of an Indian identity? Um, late 14th and 15th and 16th century, these poets—Kabir, Dadu, Ramdas, Ravidas, Mirabai—these are all talking about a kind of holistic understanding of India. And on top of that, you see, if you think about the rulers, the main Muslim kingdom before that, of course, are the Patans. Now, it's the Patans who did some of the, it's again often forgotten, especially by Hindu sectarians, that the first, I mean, we are very proud in Bengali, we have some really excellent epic translations of Ramayana and Mahabharata. How were they ordered? They were ordered in 14th century by the Pathan kings. Yeah. So Pathan's king ordered the Muslim kings of Bengal. They were ordering a translation of the Sanskrit epics into, into, into Bengali. And again, there is a kind of focus on what unites people mm. as opposed to what divides. So I think as long as we are not insisting on modern kind of nationalism, yeah. there's enough of a basis well, of unity there. Well, like you, I,
0: I do, you know, I, I always admired what uh, Akbar, the so-called Grand Mughal, Did in the way of that kind of synthesis, which you also see in the art of the period, uh, attempts to synthesize art from different parts of India and so on, Um, and the the religion that he invented, which kind of didn't catch on, one has to say, which was the kind of synthesis of the religions, the so-called Dīne lāhi, people did say that there was an element of megalomania in this, that that in um, In Fatehpur Sikri, his capital city, over the great gate of the Bulan Darwaza, the great gate of Fatehpur Sikri, there is the inscription Allahu Akbar, which of course conventionally translates as God is great, but by only a small semantic stretch translates as Akbar is God. Um, <laughs> that,
1: that I think is a little unfair I, I, I really do think it's unfair it was, it, was, it, was, it,
0: was, it was said about him even at the time <laughs> um, But yes, it is
1: unfair But, yeah. then but it was said by the, by the <laughs> Delhi Muslim priestly caste. Yes, That's yes. basically what's what happening History has a
0: way of being unfair yeah. um, the, the question I wanted to I, One of the things I think I wanted to talk to you about is yeah. Which comes out of Akbar is the way in which the Indian idea of secularism differs from the Western idea of secularism in some interesting areas. But to get to that, I just want to say that this is, you know, we're talking about a long time ago. Yeah. And if you look at more recent events in India, s- sectarian violence has been at the heart, you know, of, of, of all our lives, you know. And, and in, in your own case, of course, the partition riots were extremely formative. Yes. And uh, I, you, you tell very movingly the story of, of, a, of an encounter with the victim of violence. a I Muslim if like laborer to, yes. killed. In, in Perhaps this. you'd like to share that with...
1: Yeah, well, no, that was when I was in 11. I was 11. I was in, in Dhaka, which was then the second city of Bengal, and now the... Then later became capital of East Pakistan, now the capital of Bangladesh. So we lived... Uh, the, the regions were not entirely separated, but it was a primarily Hindu region in which we lived, not far from the university where my father taught uh, and not far from the courts where my grandfather used to practice. So I, um, I was playing in the garden when suddenly uh, came a chap, profusely bleeding and obviously being, being slashed by a knife and um, asking for some water and some help. And I, I handled, I mean, you know, I was looking after him until I, my child got my father down my mother down and my father took him to the hospital where he died but it was a extraordinary thing and I was talking with him he was actually had his head on my lap while I was uh, while having drinking water and he was t- uh, telling me and that was actually quite important for my understanding of, of, of economics and the role of it too uh, in that very early days in my, I remember thinking when I was thinking about Actually, all economic, that there was some issue there, that he said that um, his wife had told him not to go out to an unfriendly area, but there was nothing at home to eat, and uh, the, he, there was an offer of a job, and he was on his way there, and he was nearly there, when these thugs uh, stopped him and killed him. And, and the interesting thing, the, the thoughts that it generated were, A, that... I mean, all kinds of thoughts. One is the complete incomprehension as to why some people will kill this guy whom they have never met before, just because one identity, their different religious identity, was such a dominant thing. Secondly, while in terms of religious classification, that's a very different identity from the, from the Hindus there. And yet, if you look at the, the, the tally of the victims of riots, uh, the easiest people to kill are, of course, the poor West who, to, who don't live in sheltered houses, who have to go out to work. So the, the, the biggest victims of Hindu violence were Muslim poor, and the biggest victims of, uh, of, um, uh, of, of the Muslim violence were the Hindu poor. Their class identities were much the same. Their religious identities were extraordinarily different, but mm. class was not allowed to count. But this whole thing that, that, that the wife had told him, the sensible thing, don't go out in the state. He had to go out because economic necessity. Because he had to earn a crust. Yeah, this he is had to go. So That made me also see how you can't think about freedom with at the same time thinking about the economic uh, yes. freedom as being a component of it.
0: Well, we're coming, we're circling around to, this, to the key subject here, which is the subject of identity and violence. I just wanted to mention, I remember talking about another moment of extreme uh, religious violence uh, in India, the moment in Assam of the so-called Nelly killings, when, when, um, uh, I mean, there were the famous photographs of the massacred children of a particular village which had been raided by their religious enemies, so to speak. And and, uh, I've never forgotten these photographs that appeared in the Indian press and and internationally of the bodies of children laid out in in, in neat rows, um, having been slaughtered. Um, by, by these marauding villagers, and I remember talking, being in India at the time, and talking to a group of writers, including the great Kannada novelist Anantha Murthy, oh, yeah. and, and the thing he said is, which I've never forgotten, is he said we must understand that we are all guilty of these murders that if any Indian is able to do this, then all Indians are capable of it and therefore the guilt belongs to all of us, that there is, if there is in us that capacity which allows us to kill our neighbours, you know, then it is in all of us. And until we understand that, we understand nothing about what happened. Uh, I mean, I, I mention this because it runs counter to your uh, desire to unify that world and just to point out that the divisions there do run very deep and burst out in these bursts of violence.
1: Yeah, the divisions do run deep and they don't. Uh, You know, if you think about the Hindu-Muslim violence itself, the 40s that I'm describing, they came with the suddenness of a storm Mm. and then they disappeared. Mm. Bear in mind that the Hindu-Muslim riots were not standard features of Bengal at all.
2: No. But the storm is coming it back, back,
1: Amartya. The storm comes back. And well, storm comes comes back back and the storm comes back and that's why I think eternal vigilance is not the price only of liberty, but of other things too. Mm-hmm. But you see, bear in mind that, you know, this breaks up. I'm talking about 44, what I was telling you about earlier. But it's, at that time, two or three years old, this violence, 47, India is partitioned. By 1951, my city of Dhaka, not only there have been no killings since then, But also, they're a completely different issue. Now, Bengali nationalism, wanting separation, bad treatment of Bengalis in Pakistan, that becomes the issue. And the streets are full of agitation about a different cause, Mm -hmm. the cause of of, of Bengali literature, culture, and so on. So I think the depth of it, you see, if you take it to be really so deep, that it cannot be moved, it would be difficult to think of it. I mean, there obviously was an irresistible force that did move that object at mm-hmm. some stage within three years. And that, that's an extraordinary thing. So I think the, the, the important thing here, I would argue, is that when it happens, that absolutely seizes you, it, whether it's Hutus and Tutsis, or whether it's Serbs and Albanians, whether, and it's gone on for a long time, Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland, it may drown every other kind of identity and yet when it's gone you may wonder what the hell was that about? Yes. So I, I, I don't see them as powerful, we make them more powerful by assuming them to be so deep, so ingrained in human nature and the subtitle of my book is The Illusion of Destiny and I do want to emphasize that and I think but for Norton discouraging me that might have become the title of the book too. But Norton took the view I that think they it were, wouldn't they be were clear right. about the
0: one. They were right.
1: They were right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Identity of violence. But you see, my main type. thesis <laughs> is that what we take to be destiny is not only an illusion, but actually that illusion—illusion illusion has an absolutely terrible effect because it it makes people mm. paralyzed from action, and you take it for granted. And then you see one of the things that's happened now against this clash of civilization and the Hindus and Muslims and Muslims and Christians must be at loggerheads with each other. Instead of clash of civilization, the, the defense comes not saying, well, Muslims and Hindus and Christians have many other identities too, as right? mm-hmm. scientists, as, as uh, yes. you know, people liking literature, etc. Instead of that, there becomes a new program. Yes, take this one identity seriously, but now you have amity between civilizations. Dialogue among civilizations. You first reduce human beings into one miniaturised form, member of a civilization. Doesn't matter anything else. Then, right. amity, not class. Well, that's, I, I mean, think I think this, this brings yeah.
0: us to your book. Um, I yeah. just, I just think, I just do want to say that you've you have spoken and written very eloquently about the uh, sectarian murders in Gujarat. Uh, yeah. We all know about the continuing violence in Kashmir. Um, it, it does seem as if this kind of sectarian violence bursts out fairly frequently. And you're right, the next, I mean, in, in old Delhi where Hindus and Muslims live side by side, one day they can be murdering each other's children and the next day they can be happily opening their stores and you know, chatting to each other. And It is to me one of the great unexplained mysteries of human nature that we are able to f- like flip. Between these two things, um, let 's not belabor the point you 've gone on to talk about the central idea of identity and violence, which is that in fact, we are not one, we are many as individuals you know, to, to, as yeah. in the in the in the famous uh, uh, formulation of Walt Whitman, yeah. you know uh, we contain multitudes and and uh, do we contradict ourselves very well, we contradict ourselves um, and uh, I just wanted to to let people hear, there's a a passage in the book which which gives a good exposition of this idea about how many things we can be and what it means. Would you you like to read
1: this for a few minutes? Okay, thank you. you. Yeah. I have to make clear that my own book is not my favorite reading. Uh, Always, but when I'm commanded to do that, I, I do that. Being a good boy. Read. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, This is a chapter called Making Sense of Identity. A history and background are not the only way of seeing ourselves and the groups to which we belong. There are a great variety of categories to which we simultaneously belong. I can be at the same time, and I'm afraid it's autobiographical a bit, same time an Asian, an Indian citizen, a Bengali with Bangladeshi ancestry, an American or British resident, an economist, a dabbler in philosophy, an author, a Sanskritist, a strong believer in secularism and democracy, a man, a feminist, a heterosexual, a defender of gay and lesbian rights with a non-religious lifestyle from a Hindu background, a non-Brahmin, and a non-believer in an afterlife, and also, in case the question is asked, a non-believer in before life as well. <laughs> this is just a small sample of diverse categories, to each of which I may simultaneously belong. There are of course a great many other membership categories too which depending on circumstances can move and engage me. Belonging to each one of the membership groups can be quite important depending on the particular context. When they compete for attention and priority over each other they need not always since there may be no conflict between the demands of different loyalties but when they do the person has to decide on the relative importance to attach to the respective identities, which will again depend on the exact context. There are two distinct issues here. First, the recognition that identities are robustly plural and that the importance of one identity need not obliterate the importance of others. Second, a person has to make choices, explicitly or by implication, about what relative importance to attach in a particular context to the divergent loyalties and priorities that may compete for precedence. Identifying with others in various different ways can be extremely important for living in a society. It has not, however, always been easy to persuade social analysts to accommodate identity in a satisfactory way. In particular, two different types of reductionism seem to abound in the formal literature of social and economic analysis. One may be called identity disregard, and it takes the form of ignoring or neglecting altogether the influence of any sense of identity with others on what we value and how we behave. For example, a good deal of contemporary economic, economic theory proceeds as if in choosing their aims, objectives, and priorities people do not have or pay attention to any sense of identity with anyone other than themselves. John Donne may have warned, "No man is an island entire of itself," but the postulated human beings of pure economic theory are often made to see themselves as pretty entire. In contrast, the identity in contrast with identity disregard, there is a different kind of reductionism, which we may call singular affiliation, which takes the form of assuming. That any person preeminently belongs, for all practical purposes, to one collectivity only, no more and no less. Of course, we do know, in fact, that any real human being belongs to many different groups, through birth, associations, and alliances. Each of these group identities can, and sometimes does, give the person a sense of affiliation and loyalty. Despite that, the assumption of singular aff- affiliation is amazingly popular, if only implicitly among several groups of social theorists. It seems to appeal often enough to communitarian thinkers as well as to those theorists of cultural politics who like to divide up the world population into civilizational categories. The intricacies of plural groups and multiple loyalties are obliterated by seeing each person as firmly embedded in exactly one affiliation, replacing the richness of leading an abandoned human life with the formulaic narrowness of insisting that any person is quote-unquote situated in just one organic pack. To be sure, the assumption of singularity is not only the staple nourishment of many theories of identity, it is also, as I discussed in the first chapter, a frequent use weapon of sectarian activists who want the targeted people to ignore altogether all other linkages um, that could moderate their loyalty to that specially marked herd. The incitement to ignore all affiliation and loyalties other than those emanating from one restrictive identity can be deeply delusive and also contribute to social tension and ultimately violence.
0: Well, that's, I, mean, I think that yeah. passage does, in a way, mm-hmm. is what you explore throughout, throughout yeah. the book. And, and let me just start out by saying what I agree with.
1: <laughs> Paul would be disappointed <laughs> if you stop there. No, no, of course. So
0: we'll, we'll not stop there. No. But we will start there. Yeah. And it seems to me that as a novelist, one of the things that has been always clear to me is that unlike novelists in, let's say, the pre-Freudian age, who believed in character as something unitary. You know, a person was what he was. And in the immortal, you know, the immortal words of Popeye, the Sailor Man, um, you know, I am what I am, and that's what I am. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, well, it seems to me that Popeye had not read Freud. <laughs> um, just a theory. <laughs> uh, otherwise, he would know that, in fact, we are much more fractured than that and that, and that uh, as selves we are very, we are a kind of bag of selves and we contradict ourselves. And You know, put it, to put it simply, the way in which we are with our parents is not the way in which we are with our children. Uh, the way we behave with our employers is not the way we behave with our lovers. Uh, the way we behave towards our friends is not the way we behave towards people we don't like. we have, all of us, a whole series of behaviours which which different groups of people would perceive as ourselves uh, and yet might, in fact, be very different. You might be a very aggressive employer but a very timid husband, for example. Um, And yet, that would all be you. You know, so so I think in, in that sense... It, it, it's quite clear that we do, as you say, uh, cover a lot of different or contain within ourselves elements of different, to use a mathematical term, set. You know, and this, it seems to me that your theory is not unlike, in some ways, mathematical set theory. You know, um, and, and you begin to draw these circles and see how many circles we all belong in. Um, the problem is, you talk about a great deal when you, when you go on from this about the, and you, it was in that passage too, um, about the importance of choice. You say that basically what we all need to do and do do um, is to choose the relative weight that we impart to our different identities. I mean, in theory, it would be possible to meet an Islamic radical who was a Yankees fan. And therefore, even though you might oppose his Islamic radicalism, you would have Yankee fandom in common unless, unless you were a Mets fan, in which case, in which case bad luck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not this year, but anyway. Um, however, given that we do all, you say, need to make these choices and we do make these choices of, of, of the weight we give to things. I just want to just question how much of this choice-making is free choice because all kinds of things weigh on us, including peer group pressure, um, including the way in which we are perceived by others who describe us to ourselves and it's sometimes very hard to escape from that description. Um, Given that we don't come naked into the world, we come into the world, you know, we are conditioned to an extent by our upbringing um, and that conditioning makes it harder to make a free choice. And so isn't this question of choosing uh, really, in fact, quite a limited thing? And I wanted to just, to, to, to is it, for example, would you say only a privileged group who are able to make such choices? Is it class-based, for example? Is it only a very highly educated elite class that can make such choices? I mean, is it excessive to believe that as human beings we can all make such choices?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's a, it's a very good question. Um, but I don't think, I mean, I don't think I, if, if you take it as a rhetorical question, then I disagree with it. Um, namely, that I think the ability to think of ourselves in these plural terms is a very generic ability. It Probably almost as why there's what Chomsky discusses, our ability to understand syntax and language. The, if you look at the history of it, I mean, some of the people i discuss are privileged people, Ashoka in 3rd century B.C., an emperor, uh, Akbar is another emperor, and so on. And, uh, and theorists like Abu Fazal or Amir Khushab, uh, obviously intellectuals, Gandhi to go. And yet, quite a lot of the movements have come which go against sectarian identity react. If you look actually, look at the history of Akbar, it's very interesting in some ways. The beginnings of it include intellectuals, both Muslim and Hindu. Amir Khusar is probably the biggest name in the 14th century. 14, 15, 16. Who are these poets I was referring to? These are very common people. Kabir is a weaver, Dadu is a cotton Ravi Ravidas is a cobbler. these are initially folk songs arguing um, against the division between Hindus and Muslims being taken to be more serious than it is it's also religious poetry and yes they are also uh, community based poetry now that becomes a very strong movement around the area now there is an apocryphal possibly we don't know story that Akbar had a 40-day meeting with one of them, Dadu, who was born a Muslim, got in Kada, and became one of those things and started a group called Brahma Sampradai, which you can clearly indicate that he was crossing also various boundaries. So, uh, well before, Akbar himself held these major Ag- uh, Agra discussions, at a time, again uh, you know, between the rest and religion, and at a time, if I may say, with some pride, exactly at a time when these discussions were going going on Giordano Bruno was burnt at the stake in, in Rome come to be a theory to be exact for apostasy so at that visionary moment preceding that he had already had conversation with a cotton carder coming and lecturing him and it's too you may think that by Allahu Akbar, he was praising himself. <laughs> but a guy who is ready to listen to a cotton kada, but successful poet, having something to say, asking him what the hell do you want to say? And so I, I think this is the reason again and again. And just one of the things I should mention: um, uh, the actually, my, my grandfather had a book on Hinduism, which was I translated in uh, fifty years ago, uh, and uh, he discusses how the 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 question of uh, amity has often come in in the different communities from very common people. But it is true even today. There's not a single one of the riots that I can think of that had rural origin. They're basically urban phenomenon. They're disgruntled urban. I think Marx would have called them lumpen proletariat. Is often the cannon fodder. Often the pedestrians who are uh, the, the, the the foot soldiers who are. Recruited for that. But they're always theory thought of. I mean, the, the the Hindutva based violence to which you referred in Gujarat and others, you can trace it to the ideas, theorists, Savarkar and others, mm. uh, and not to rural thought. There's not a single riot that actually originated in, in the rural area, and that was true even in the 1940s. They're generated in the cities. So I think in some ways, the lower classes get a bad press in this. I don't think it is the case that it's a privilege of the, uh, of the, uh, of the elite to, uh, mm. to think in these terms. When the last elections were going on, 2004, the Indian general election, which was a very important one because the first general election after the Gujarat riots, and actually the, 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 the party most implicated did lose office, but I remember travelling around in Bengal in, in, uh, because I have a trust of which does some work on schools and, and hospitals. And I remember talking with a person, very poor, possibly illiterate, and I asked him what you were, how were they viewing the election. He said, well, I hope we do speak up. We were discussing exactly that issue. And then I said, well, do you think we will? And he said, you know, I ought to tell you that it's it, it not very hard to silence us. Hmm. But that's not because we cannot speak. I think the distinction he was making that it is not an endogenous inability to understand these issues and speak up. If we don't speak up, it's because we are afraid. We are cowed down by others, either by propaganda, by the architects of violence, or by state machinery, He would be arrested. Well, that's just the point, is is that if
0: there are such pressures as fear working on us... Uh, to, to what extent can we
1: make these choices? Well, that is the role. I mean, I know that you played that role, and I think we, in a smaller way, all play that role, namely to, to, to stand up against mm. that. And that if there is any, uh, at the moment, there are all kinds of things. I mean, I, one of my worries at the moment is that there is a kind of unholy alliance between Islamic extremism on one side and Western parochialism on the other side, both of them taking a very, very similar view of, of, of the, you know, a Muslim is a Muslim and, uh, you know, they're, they're going to kill us or, or you know, or, or it's our duty to kill them. Uh, and and I think we have to speak up and, you know, talk about the variety of identities that we have as, in, uh, as, as intellectuals and, you know, acknowledge to being one. And yet a lot of the leadership ha- would have come from from... What the what you hear people talk about in the mm-hmm. streets of Calcutta, you're too much of a Bombay wallah to <laughs> recognize what are the small things that are talked about as we walk around in Calcutta, maybe in Bombay no, well, I, un- I understand that yeah.
0: between these cities there's a mm. entirely healthy mutual contempt. (Laughter) <laughs> um, but well, at least in Bombay, the sidewalks don't have 10-foot holes in them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, sorry, that's a little side, a little quarrel on I the side.
1: To, I have to do a retaliation from a Bengali, actually, <laughs> I adopted Bengali. Uh, my friend, um, um, Salma Soban telling me, because she was very upset like I was when Bombay renamed itself and called itself Mumbai. Yes, ridiculous. And I we we thought it was ridiculous and Salma said you know Master when you think about it it's not a bad effort on the part of someone trying to say Bombay while looking for his denture (laughs) yes (laughs) Uh, I I, I have a feeling that we
0: could go down this side road for quite a long time (laughs) but maybe we should not Um, uh, just just to Drag us back. Of course, side roads in Calcutta, they're all side roads. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there yeah. are no main roads. <laughs> um, sorry. sorry. Yeah. Uh, the question, in your, again, in the piece you read about singularity and about yeah. the, uh, what, you, what you I clearly would describe, I think, as being an error to, to, to allow oneself to be put into just one box, you know, whether that's a box of, of religion or race or class or nation or tribe or whatever it may be, but that, that, uh, that singularity you could
1: describe as, as, as a kind of error, a yeah. so, uh, kind of error of self-description. Yeah, yeah? It's, a, its main problem is it's an epistemic failure first yeah. before it becomes an ethical failure yeah. too. But what happens? Yeah. Let's take the example, for example, for
0: just to, as, a, as, a, as an instance of the July bombers in England. Uh, what happens if that singularity error is the choice made by the individual? What, what happens if you're saying that we must make choices about the weight we give to our different identities? What if the choice we make is that only one of our identities matters and that only one of our identities is relevant or truthful or powerful or necessary to, to, as, as a basis for action? If that is the free choice made by the, by the individual, which you say the individual should make, to reject pluralism, to become singular, and, and the consequence of that is an event like that, an event like a, a, a suicide bombing. Um, I mean, you can't if, you're, if, you're in, if you are advocating free choice, then that must be something that you would have to respect, rather than calling it... Is that a mistake, is what I'm saying,
1: or is well, it a choice? Think, uh, yeah, no, I think that's an excellent question. I think, I think we're pushed in different directions, and it take the July 7... Bombing. I was actually in London on that day. In fact, I had gone in the same direction as, uh, as Piccadilly. I was uh, catching a Heathrow tra- a plane to, to go to Frankfurt that day. Uh, and this happened a little later, uh, when, the, when the Piccadilly line uh, was blown up and, and the buses and so on. Now, if you look at it, there are really several distinct things to look at here. The worrying thing, of course, that w- shook the British, that these were British-born... <coughs> Britain-reared, educated, uh, you know, in Britain children who have grown up to to have that sense of dissonance with the British community. On one side, there is the pressure from Islamic terrorism and, and, you know, recruiting them. And actually one of the things that's overlooked now that the, the warm memory of the empire is making such a comeback in everywhere how much of the legacy of empire, the sense of, the sense of having been badly treated when the, when the European powers could divide Middle East or Africa as they like, just draw a line and, and the countries would be different countries, how much of that the Islamic terrorists really draw on. So there is that. I mean, on top of that, of course, there is homegrown dogmatism on the, on the Islamic side. And yet, if you look at the other side of it, what is the British policy doing? The British were very visionary in many ways. In, in, unlike the French, had uh, you know, by and large, all colored people resident in Britain have a vote because coming from Commonwealth, a subject of the Queen without British citizenship, they vote. I vote in Britain. And that immediately gives me a sense of identity. That was very well done. The pension, the National Health Service, uh, far less discriminatory, if, if I'm any judge, compared with the French. And yet... They also decided at that time, and I think that was high theory, that the best way of looking at multiculturalism is this plural monoculturalism stuff, so that for the sake of a mechanical parity, they just that there were Christian schools paid for by the government, there would be Muslim schools, the Hindu schools, Sikh schools. Not just that these schools, I mean, they're, they're coming up very fast, but their evil effect we will see in the future. But that mentality that led to that line of thinking. I mean, I'm a great believer that the British identity is a very important thing uh, for people to pursue at that time, without denying any other kind of identity. You know, you may be a Muslim, you may be Hindu, you may be a Labour Party, or you may be something else, but this unique identity of being a British Muslim this became a big thing. I was absolutely horrified as I was catching my plane to hear the government appealing the British Muslim community to get it, act together. That's an invitation to British Muslims not to act as British citizens in the civil society, the comprehensive undermining of which is one of the problems we see everywhere from, the, from, the, from Europe and America to Iraq. But this is a kind of deliberate undermining of it, asking people to act within the religious community. Go and meet your imams and tell them to be moderate rather than extremists. That's the line. I was be called up by a Bangladeshi friend, and he said, I just heard the Prime Minister uh, appealing to me not to act as a member of the Labour Party, mm. not to act as a member of the Transport and General Workers Union, but as a Muslim, and I must go and visit the local Imam, whom I have never visited, because, <laughs> because I'm a British Muslim, and it is my job to get him to be moderate. Yeah. Now, I think this whole discourse plays... I think it's devastating. No, but, but
0: I agree with you. I think on the subject of the pathetic Blair government, I don't think, I don't think we'd have any disagreement. But I, what, I, what I'm asking you to, to yeah. accept is that these boys, or oh, I have to tell you, I don't know, yeah. I think it should be more widely known, that the, the joke that entered the internet within 24 hours of the, of the July bombings was uh, two British Muslims go into a sporting goods store. And try on rucksacks. And, yeah. and, and Muhammad says to Abdullah, Does my bomb look big in this? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it was actually very healthy that the humor began within 24 hours of that event. It was a very British reaction, in many ways, to that event. But the fact is that these boys decided to strip away from themselves all their other available identities. You know, the, their identities as if you like, British, as the children of their parents, as the brothers of their siblings, um, as, you know, cricket players. One of them certainly had some talent in that department. Um, You know, whatever other selves they decided, they they chose to be this self, you know. and I'm not sure that you can explain that away entirely by outside pressure on them, because no. one of the things we now, even the British police, are saying is that they didn't seem to have any real links to Al Qaeda, and they seem to get all this stuff off the internet. Um,
1: the cultivation what would you, of that identity. What would, you
0: say, what would you say to those people if you had the chance, if you were up there with the 72 virgins? Um, <laughs> or, or, as we now know, raisins. Yeah, <laughs> um, the mistranslation uh, for the Aramaic yeah <laughs> but
1: yeah my Aramaic is a bit rusty so I won't comment on no, it this
0: is, I must say it's the, the, yeah. the only, one of the very few reasons I can think of for believing in an afterlife yeah. is to see the look on the faces of people arriving to, with, with an expectation of virgins and being offered a bowl <laughs> of dried fruit
2: yeah.
1: laughter I don't think I I don't think the I don't think the virgins play a very big part in in this kind of violence that you're Mm. looking at I don't think whatever these four um, Pakistani origin Muslim boys but British citizens were doing I don't think they were looking for virgins I think they were looking for a sense of what they see as a justice and they take I think that actually I'm glad you asked the question because I'd like to turn it around and saying that that's what makes the identity show so important Mm -hmm. that it was strongly instilled on them that it's true they have a British identity but you know the British are doing pretty well look at the unfortunate creature in the world the Muslims all around the world for a uh, a thousand years they might have been the strongest power but my God they're absolutely nowhere they can Europeans and the Westerners can do what they like with them and we ought to change that situation. So there is a strong sense of commitment. So much of, the, so much of the terrible things happen along with a mood of self-sacrifice. They were self-sacrificing people. I don't think they're looking for virgins primarily. I think they are looking for doing something which they think is the just thing to do. And that's exactly why civil society is important and that's exactly why the multiplicity of identities and the fact that their demand from identities mm-hmm. are so important. You know, I think there have been, you see, at the moment, if you think about it, the global movement about the only non-religious, non, say, Islamic terrorism. But there were others too, like, uh, you know, hindu the world movement too, Vishwa Hindu Parishad is the world movement. The Sikhs have been world movement also. Um, the but they are
0: world movements in the sense that based the world series is the world series. Well, I mean, no, no. They, they not no. really go across well, the world. Uh,
1: yeah, uh, <laughs> that may apply to the, that may apply to the, to the Hindus and the yeah. Sikhs, but the Islamic is much, much wider. No. But I think the only uh, opposite group, of course, are things like anti-globalization people. Yeah. I think the odd thing are the two things. The pro-globalization, as it were, capital, world capitalism, is a great unifier. Mm. Business is the point that David Hume noted, that as you do business with others, you come to know about their existence. You can hardly overlook the fact that they exist. Mm. And similarly, anti-globalisation people; these are not local boys of Genoa and Seattle. They come from everywhere, from Adelaide to Kuala Lumpur, so they to are come and they are, they are a different globalized. kind of identity. Globalists. They mm. are anti-globalisation movement is the is the biggest globalised movement in the world yeah. today. Yeah. All right. And so. And and that's to their credit. And I think even those who don't like their economic rhetoric should see that they provide an alternative way of thinking about one's global identity. So I think there are all kinds of other things happening. It's just that what this singularity thesis does is to reduce everything to non existence, you know. And I think this is what I think the clash of civilization or for that matter, the amity of civilization theorists try to do. All
0: right, and good. I'm glad you got there because now we can come to some of the people who don't like what you say. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, far be it from me to say that I agree with them, but I'm going to be them for the moment. Yeah. Sure. Um, you mentioned the Huntington's thesis, the clash yeah. of civilizations thesis. Um, one of the people writing about your book, and uh, I think the Washington Post, Critically, yeah, uh, yes, yeah, uh, said that essentially you are offering this worldview, the worldview of, of the pluralism of self, the pluralism of identity, and the importance of recognizing and fostering that. Right? Uh, to, to, to simplify his argument, he says that, that, is, that there is no momentum behind that idea, that this 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 uh, what you call miniaturization. Uh, the, the, the singularization of identity is actually where all the momentum is right now. Um, that's actually what's happening in the world, you know, rather than what one might wish to happen in the world, that's in fact what is happening in the world. And given that, that the Huntington thesis, the clash of civilizations thesis, is a much more persuasive description of the world we live in than yours. And that, I mean, I don't think he uses the term, but the he, it strongly suggests that yours would be a kind of wishy-washy liberalism, whereas that's the kind of tough truth, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of that? <laughs> uh, not much. No,
1: no. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I just wondered
0: in what uh, terms yeah.
1: you might think the, of. <laughs> um, the, um, I don't know the gentleman in question. Fouad yeah, yeah, I, I don't know him either. But He's a well-known guy, I guess. Uh, um, well, he knows uh, himself anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think I agree with that. You know, I think he would find it greatly difficult to explain many things that's happening today, even in Britain. It's a very small, small fraction of the population has acted the way, even of the Muslim population in Britain had acted the way that the July 7 bombers did, a very tiny fraction. Um, and across the world, everywhere you s- see that, it's just that... It that's inflated, and there's an attempt to pump it up. And if, in addition to Islamic terrorists pumping it up, if Western parochialists to, to join mm-hmm. hands to pump it up, I have reason to protest. It's not because they're winning anyway, and I don't think they can win anyway, eventually, but it's not the way the world is. I mean, take India. We, the, it's a country of... But sorry to a- sorry interrupt. When you say it's not the way the world is, yeah. it is the way the world is. No, I'm not. I mean, it's the way the world is in the sense that it's the way some people think the world is. Mm. And that's a feature of the world, that these are, mm. you know, people don't often recognize how special their own position is. Mm. Can I tell you a story on that? Yeah, please. Okay. <laughs> One of my favorite stories, which is also connected with that. I think it's probably figures in the book somewhere. This is about the difficulty about people not, not understanding how others see them. And this is a story from Italy. My late wife was Italian, Italian Jewish ancestry, and she um, died a loss of, of illness. Her father was killed by Mussolini by the fascist. But this is from the time when the fascist party in the 1920s is making great inroads in, in the rural areas in Italy. They're going to, They're doing propaganda and asking people to join the fascist party. And there's an Italian rural... Simpleton, whom this fascist recruiter gets hold of, and he explains why he should join the fascist party. And this guy said, Well, I can't join the fascist party. Um, It's impossible because I am a socialist. My father was a socialist. My grandfather was a socialist. My great grandfather was a socialist. I cannot possibly join the fascist party. To which this person said, This is an extremely silly argument if you think about it. Imagine if you were if your father was a murderer, if your grandfather was a murderer, if your great-grandfather was a murderer, then what would you have done then? (laughs) To which he said, then of course I would have joined the fascist party. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I think people don't have enough (laughs) self-esteem. But what I was pointing out... uh, is that if he is viewing India the way he thinks the world is, yes. how would he explain? I mean, we have, I mean, we have had ups and downs. We have had our share of riots, and, and people have fought it. It's a big issue. Bangladesh is a big issue going on right now. Now, in India, we have 82% of the population is Hindu. If you look at the three principal positions of government, the president of the country is Abdul Kalam, a Muslim, the prime minister is Manmohan Singh, a Sikh, The leader of the ruling party is Sonia Gandhi, a Christian born in Italy. And there would be no way that in, I shouldn't say Fuad's world because I don't know him other than this review, that in this world that you could imagine this be possible. Mm. One of the big things that happened in Pakistan, I mean, by the way, Bangladesh's separation from Pakistan was not on grounds of religion, not on grounds of literature, culture, as well as secularism. If you look at Pakistan, one of the biggest things that's happened in the subcontinent over the last ten years is the emergence of an independent and largely secular press. The powerful papers, uh, the Dawn, the Daily Times, yeah. the News, the which, Nation. Which all of which used to be official mouthpieces. Yeah, they all changed. Way. And, mm, and mm. if I think about my, one of my great gurus, a great Urdu poet who you, you knew, yeah. Faiz Ahmed Faiz, who was one of the early leaders of of, uh, of, of Pakistani sort and Pakistan editor of Pakistani times, he was arrested, and he eventually died. And that he would have been absolutely delighted. This is what he was trying to do in the 50s and 60s. Hmm. But this has happened in Pakistan. And it's it's. I mean, to ignore all that, as if not exist. And I can understand. I'm shocked, of course, that every time the leader of, of from Britain or America visits they would never visit a member of the civil society. They would confine themselves to well, political leaders and military leaders, and in the case of conveniently in Pakistan, they are the same, so that in, they don't have to travel very far to see them all. On the other hand, I wish they would spend a, I mean, the undermining of civil society, mm-hmm. which is taking such a hard toll in Iraq, is, is something also cultivated by ignoring altogether everything else. And the way of looking at it, I shouldn't say that, the no, no, way of looking it, at it, it. pushes us in the direction of forgetting everything else, just that one mm. way of looking at war and the war on terror in this case.
0: So, that's told him. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, another, and I think in a way, let's just uh, look at this, because I think it's, a, it's another serious criticism from another fan um, in in the Wall Street Journal, um, is that you whitewash, if you like, the failings of Muslims. That people like Mr. Sen overlook Muslim or Islamic failings for fear of appearing unsecular. Any political conflict in which one side is characterized as Muslim is automatically disparaged as being anti-Muslim. And so on. In other words, that by saying that we have many different identities, and maybe the bits of us that are doing the quarreling are not the religious ones, that you're letting off the hook uh, the Islamic ideology which in the view of the critic, would be be responsible for a lot of what's going on. So uh, why, you know, early Islamic Arabic breakthroughs in mathematics are held up as proof of intellectual greatness, but why did the Islamic world flounder into a state of long-running anti-scientism? Mr. Sen compares the very best of the non-West with everyday practice in the West. This is a common problem with the defenders defenders of Islam. Uh, then, Then it has some class jibes at you. About how, about how upper class you are. Yeah. You know, one Bengali is a poet, two Bengalis are a film society, <laughs> three Bengalis are a political party, four Bengalis are two political parties, both leftist. <laughs> um, That's anyway, a very flattering description. You know, and, and kind of so untrue, <laughs> yeah. so horribly untrue. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, what this do I this question of whether are you, are you
1: soft on Islam, well, and if so, why? Think, I don't think I am. I think, I think Islamic terrorism is causing a tremendous amount of uh, vast nastiness and violence in the world today. But, you know, I think where my disagreement is, is to see in the history of Muslim people, which is not the same thing as Islamic history, nothing other than that. I mean, the, one of the oddities, I mean, what he's referring to here, for example, I was mentioning the fact that um, when an American mathematician today does an algorithm, he may or may not recognize, he or she, that it's the, it's his, he or she is commemorating the memory of a Muslim mathematician in the ninth century called al-Kharazmi, from whose name algorithm comes, and from whose Arabic book al-Jabbar al-Muqabila comes the term algebra. Now, so I think what this guy is saying, he's saying, yes, but why did it die out?
2: Because
1: mm-hmm. uh, it's true that every time people praise the great achievements of Islam, they all happened but 600 these are not years ago. Messes, I think it's a mistake <laughs> to... Uh, okay, <laughs> but I would say, but I would have another take on that in addition yeah, to the one right. you're taking, that, the, that the, um, it, the, the, it's wrong to think of them as achievements of religion as such. It's mm. certainly true that Islam gave a kind of... A, 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 a political unity which made this possible with a very liberal kind of flowering of his society possible. Uh, but it's also true that these were, it would be wrong to think of Al-Kharazmi as an Islamic author. He is not. Indeed, not only, my complaint is, not only in British schools of Christian variety is Al-Kharazmi, anything about him mentioned, but in the newly found. Blair's Islamic school, they're not taught, taught either because that's a part of Muslim history, not a part of Islamic history. Now, I think the, the question is that it's been overwhelmed and I think in this the empire did play a part and so if, if, the, if people don't recognize what kind of forces generated and if, 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 if Muslim violence is fed by that one could, I try to argue in the argumentative India on how James Mills vision of India directly feeds into the Hindu extremism that we see today. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a kind of dialectical relationship there. But that's not to in any way to overlook what terrible things are done in the name of Islamic uh, you know, fundamentalism today. I, I agree with my friend Mamdani's Mom- thesis that fundamentalism is not the same thing as terrorism, mm-hmm. but in translating that Yes, there is a propaganda going on, but rather than saying we blame them all, we have to see what is the way to intervene. I mean, the the so-called war on terror is going on without engaging civil society anywhere, starting with elections, without any kind of discussion when media is completely uh, haywire in, in Iraq. I mean, when all that's going on, to pursue that ideological issue rather than the political issue of our different identities and that we can... Interact again, you know. We have a, you know, if you have a decent media, if you have unions, if you have uh, occupational groups, etc., it would take a very different form. You know, I think the history of it, Fuad also raised this question looking back historically in that review. Uh, and I think one of my critics in the Wall Street Journal did too. There were several letters published on that. Uh, that one uh, said that I referred to the fact that the Jewish uh, philosopher Maimonides when he had difficulty in Spain, he went to Cairo. Now, it was, for me we think that this is a telling point against me, to say that the difficulty he had in Spain came from Islamic yeah. uh, rulers. Now, that's true. That, of course, never denied. Uh, there was a change. I mean, 9th century Caliph Abd al-Rahman with the Jewish uh, vizier, Sapruth, did some of the finest multicultural work in ninth century world in the world but 11th century again uh, uh, 12th century it's changed but the interesting point is where did he go he did not go to Britain he didn't go to France or Germany Richard the Lionheart was fighting the crusades against Saladin Maimonides didn't go to Richard the Lionheart he went to Saladin and was given a position in his court became a court doctor and a high-ranking official there. Right. So I think it's my point isn't that there isn't a lot of skeletons in that cupboard, hmm. but I think when the Western parochialists say that in, in the history of Muslims there is nothing other than intolerance, yes. that is, I mean, as you pointed out earlier, that, and uh, that, uh, I want to emphasize that, that to start with an epistemic failure, a, a complete confusion about the nature of history about that period. And then it also generates an ethical and a political failure today. Yeah. If I could just bring you forward
0: 900 years. <laughs> um, okay. um, just for the, as a last question before we ask yeah. the audience to, to intervene. If this is your desirable goal, the, the, the fact that we should shed singularity of identity, that we should resist miniaturization of the self um, and that we should seek to comprehend ourselves as broadly based multiple identities with much more in common with each other than we might otherwise suspect. In a moment in the history of the world when we seem to be going the other way, when we seem to be um, more and more defining ourselves, narrowly, whether that's, you know, Serb, Croat, Bosnian, whether it's, whether it's India, Pakistan, whether it's, whether it's the West against Islam, whatever, you know, whatever it may be, we do seem to be going in the other direction, okay? So the question then is, how do we reverse that trend and how do we get where you, how do we begin to get where you want us to go? Yeah.
1: well. Yeah, I, 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 where I think I will disagree, I mean, without denying the importance of the question, the practical reason, what should we do? There's also, I'm not sure I acknowledge that we are moving in the opposite direction. There are many different things happening. There are very vocal people and very violent people, in fact, on both sides, mm-hmm. which are pursuing one type of cause. But other things happen. I was very privileged for three years to be president of the fan. And a number of... of Thousands of people, volunteers from different countries, going to incredibly difficult places. Uh, it's amazing, actually, as to how much sacrifice they would make. And suddenly I found myself, I, I was a member of this group that was start, started by Ted Turner and Sam Nunn called Nuclear Threat Initiative. One of our meetings was taking place when the Afghan operation began. And suddenly I found I was sitting among people in Washington who were extremely well informed, extremely well connected. But I knew more about it because I was still the president of Oxfam. Because that morning I had phone calls and there were 18 of our people in uh, Oxfam in Afghanistan. Mm. And I had more information on that. From the nature of the information, it's quite clear how precarious they were. But there they were, and as you know, actually, they went on fighting. Happily, we didn't lose anyone in Afghanistan. We did lose somewhere else. But at that time... They were trying to carry out relief operation to people don't, not of the same color, not of the same religion, don't share anything other than a, a, a broad identity of human being, which became a big mm. one, which is yes. a very big factor in that. And that's all happening. And anti-globalization movement, I mentioned, is just one of them. And there are, there are also even there's a different face of religion. I think missionary activities have often been very concerned with educating people, sometimes, of course, pressurizing But at the same time, also, there's a big general general trust on education, which we should not deny, as in some ways, some of the uh, Hindu group, anti-Christian Hindu group, has tried to misportray them. I think there have been globalized movements of a really important kind, and they continue today. I think, therefore, I will reformulate the question, what can we do to strengthen it? Now, there, I think, I do believe uh, uh, that clarity is a great enemy uh, of, of sectarianism. I do believe that. There's a peculiar passage of Wittgenstein which is actually difficult to interpret. I know there's some distinguished philosophers here in the audience who might be able to weigh here. I think saying, I quoted from memory saying, I sometimes wish I was a better person, i.e., more informed and intelligent. Now, you don't think that being informed and intelligent is necessarily making you a good person, but I think there is a point that being referred to there, there's a connection that being drawn that a lot of our nastiness comes from inability to understand, lack of clarity Mm. and so on. So that's the direction I would like to go.
0: That's a very fine answer for a writer to give. (laughs) Read me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're going to, we've got about, uh, I guess, 20 minutes for all of you to have your say. Um, Um, There are microphones, I think, there and there, and if you could proceed towards them. And just, you know, to make the usual caveats, please ask questions. Do not make speeches. Uh, Do not ask long, complicated questions. say who you are. Say who you are, if you'd like, unless that's an alarming concept. (laughs) Um, uh, Please end the sentence with a question mark. Uh, And um, if we could do that, that would be great because then we won't be wasting time. I don't see... is there a microphone over there? Two on each side. Two on each side. Well, anybody who'd like to ask a question can do so now. Otherwise, we'll sit here and talk amongst ourselves. Yes. Hi. Yes, it's all. Yeah, you, you, you cite India as an example in all this having multiple identities. But there's a strong sociological argument that India is an odd example because, because of the peculiar nature of the Hindu religion, since it's a polytheistic religion and an, it believes in multiple gods. Therefore, as a country, it's, it's, co- it's very comfortable with having multiple religions. Whereas Islam and Christianity are monotheistic religions, and therefore the oddity arises. So I don't know whether how strong is India as an example of having multiple
2: identities living. Yeah,
1: yeah, your question is—is is this correct? The question is. Uh, yeah. Th- <laughs> yeah. The question is whether
0: polytheism, a polytheistic culture like India, is a yeah. good example when faced with
1: yeah. monotheistic conflicts. Yeah. Uh, let me take you out of that terrain of polytheism versus monotheism to say that the first strong articulation in India of tolerance of different points of view comes from a Buddhist emperor called Ashoka, uh, 3rd century BC. And as you probably know, Buddhism is an agnostic religion. So that is a non-theistic religion. There is no God at all. If I would have a very moving passage, we would never settle the question A. And B, uh, none of our moral decisions hinge on the existence of God indeed if it did that would be a self-interested argument better treatment in the future rather than a moral argument now so Ashoka was the first one to state that and if you think about the two principal theorists of religious tolerance in India one is a Buddhist named the Ashoka and one is a Muslim named the Akbar so that would go a certain amount against uh, saying that it's the peculiar nature of Hinduism that makes that possible. I, I do agree that Hinduism, not so much because the multiplicity of gods, I'm not sure what it, what it does uh, for this issue, but the fact that there are different uh, sections of Hinduism and that there are books written and again and again, the fact that in the Vedas, for example, for 1500 BC, uh, there is, I think, probably the first strongly articulated verse about agnosticism, saying is there a God, did he make the world it's, it's called the Song of Creation by the way, I think book 10 if you want to check it up. Uh, did he create it, if he created it, is he still here if he created and still here does he remember it and so on, and it ends by saying perhaps he does and the final line says perhaps he does not <laughs> uh, and I think that, that is rather good, that's got nothing to do with monotheism, uh, in fact, that is a monotheistic verse about a singular creation of by one God. So I think the I think the variety of religious experiences is important. But I think the variety of religious experiences, not only within Hinduism, but India generally, is quite important. I agree that, that you know, in some ways, we are very lucky. We have Christians from fourth century, Jews from the first centuries since the, from the fall of Jerusalem after the shortly after the fall of Jerusalem. We have had uh, Muslim traders from 7th century onward. Parsi started coming from the 8th century, um, and so on. So we have had Sikhism originated in India, Jainism, Buddhism, so we have had this variety, and that helped. But, you know, in some ways, that kind of multiplicity of point of views is something which has been generated in different forms, not perhaps with so many historical examples elsewhere too. If you look at a book like, say, Nelson Mandela, if you think of the one, I would say, I would vote if I had to vote today, who is the greatest political leader of, 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 the, of the present time, I would say Nelson Mandela. Now, if you look at a book, his autobiography, uh, Long Walk to Freedom, where does he think he learns about democracy? He first defines democracy in the way that I was trying to argue earlier, democracy is government by discussion. But then he says, how, where did I learn it? Not in Pretoria, not anywhere else. He learned it, he said, in, in the Regent's House, regular meeting in his tribal town. Because their people spoke. They didn't have all one vote, but they all spoke. And everyone had a right to speak, no matter how lowly or highly they were. So I think that's history of heritage, and people like, you know, the people disputed. But anthropologists like Maya Fortes and others have tried to argue why there is a long-running democratic tradition in Africa of consultation and so forth. So I think it would be wrong of Indians just because, you know, being verbose also means we have an enormous amount of these examples that people remember and carry on. and, And, you know, there's an enormous story going on there. The memory has been a big thing. I gather there is a problem, I shouldn't put my foot into it, but there is a debate going on about an Indian author, about whether she might have plagiarized or not, and she said that she has such fantastic memories, she remembers them. But I think I can believe it, because there, was a, there were a lot of people know, I know who actually knew the Vedas, which is just a massive document, by heart. It's just massive. I a, think, you know, just remembering is
0: one thing, copying it out into your book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but we don't know that, to be fair to her, we don't know that he actually copies it. <laughs>
0: you you're a very generous <laughs> man. And, uh, just on the subject of verbose, how about the shorter answers? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: I just have a question. I, I think it's very helpful for us sitting here to think about ourselves in terms of having a multiplicity of identities. Um, But just getting back to what you were saying earlier about the relationship between economic disempowerment and sort of ethnic conflict, how, how does that translate? How does thinking about ourselves from a very academic perspective in this way translate into trying to build peace at in places where many of the people who are conflicting, a lot of it is coming from, I think, a place of economic disempowerment, and so you, they cling yeah, so to these and, identities. Uh, the, the
1: sound is quite bad for me. Maybe it's my problem. But you're saying the economic environment is that right? What you're I
2: think that when people are di- economically disempowered, they cling to these identities in a stronger way than maybe you or I would. Yeah. So how do we trans- How do we translate
1: that? <laughs> yeah, I, I think the main thing there. It's a, it's a very deep and a difficult question, but. Let me say this that the, and I'll try to keep it short, the, um, the, um, the, I think the economics, and not surprisingly when you think about it, is really a very positive force in both directions here. Because economics gives a different kind of identity from religious identity, community identity, civilizational identity, or for that matter, national identity. What it does do, on one side, there is market economy expanding you get into as david hume was saying as i was quoting saying that we now know about people whose existence we did not know because we trade with them so that's one side that sounds like a pro-capitalist argument but think of the anti-capitalist argument that you know the world is being beaten down by the capitalist we ought to protest against it we ought to go to the anti-globalization movements and we ought to rejoin and you know after all the first international, second international, third international, were working class movements against capitalism. So there's a long history on the economic side of globalism, which is also the other side. Now, they happen to be on the economic front in, in class with each other. But jointly, they provide a different perspective altogether from the religiosity, the civilizational categorisers, Huntington and and Fouad and, and others, and they provide a completely different perspective. So in the present context, without entering which is right, one could say that the economic uh, enterprise is a very positive one in adding to the plurality. I do discuss how to deal with global injustice issues, so may I refer to Chapter 7, but I promise not to read it out, or perhaps I should read it out. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you. Yes, sir.
2: Uh, I was wondering, what immediate tools would you recommend
1: for policymakers? Uh,
2: what immediate tools would you recommend for policymakers when they have to deal with situations uh, where identity, identity loyalties collide, such as in Bosnia and Iraq and elsewhere? When they have to come in and do something right away, uh, so would you recommend uh, internationalisation of the issue immediately, or whatever else you might think is?
1: Well, it depends on what the circumstances are. I think in the case of Rwanda, an intervention in early on would have done a lot of good. And some fomenting that came from some European countries, Americans were not greatly involved in that, in the absence of it would have helped too, certainly. But um, I might say also, and, and this is the time also to remember, that among the victims of Tutsi violence, Hutu violence, were not only Hutus, uh, but uh, not only Tutsis, but also Tutus, uh, Hutus <laughs> who, who fought against the, that perspective. So local, local resistance is important also. Now, if you're dealing with Iraq, it's a different kind of situation. I think the intervention was a complete mistake. In any case, they were not involved in this kind of fight at all. I mean, the kind of thing that you're describing. I also think that landing your army is not a very good way of beginning democracy in any part of the world. So I think... <laughs> Depending on the circumstances, I'll have given an answer. One of my teachers, Piero Schaffer, used to say that one of the difficulties of economic education is that you would be told again and again that no theory is complete until you can convert the economic theory into a slogan. Now, I don't believe that. So I'm afraid I'm not going to give you a formula.
0: Thank you. Yes, sir.
2: Uh, Yeah, you you talk about the singularity of of personalities. And but as a person sort of rather than looking looking at everything through sort of multiple lenses what about a rational choice model that you consider an identity what model well rather than looking at options through varying lenses of your personality what if when well, you look at a, you choose an identity which is a proxy for many of your viewpoints i mean you know whether it be race or class or whatever it you also have tie in the relationships of your other selves, of your parents or family
1: or what have you? Well, you know, I, uh, I think um, where I think I made part company with you is this idea of multiple lens. It makes it sound like a complicated exercise, but there's nothing complicated in my seeing myself as an economist, as a... As basically an agnostic of a Hindu background, Indian citizen living in America, a professor at Harvard and so on. And I mean, these are not different lenses, these are just description. It's like, you know, the contrast would be like that old Indian story about describing the elephant on the part of three blind man saying the trunk is the only thing or the, or the, or the, or the, or the legs are the only thing. There, you don't need different lenses to see an elephant, you need one lens to see an elephant. So I think that's what I'm trying to argue. So it is, and I was pleased that someone emphasised that, it's the, it's the descriptive failure, the epistemic failure, which feeds the political confusion. That's what I'm trying to avoid. So I think you and I have the same enterprise in mind, but I would say that the part I'm suggesting, the standard thing I'm suggesting, and I'm not at all new in suggesting it, people have suggested it for thousands of years, is the standard one to recognise that we are complex creature and we must not be reduced into one-dimensional miniaturized human beings.
2: Hi, my name is Vishwa. Um, It seems like you're saying that having a singular identity makes one extremely vulnerable in the world. And just to play devil's advocate for a moment, do you think that perceiving of oneself and others as having these multiplicitous, um, chameleon-like, almost infinite identities depending on who they're interacting with in the world um, affects our ability to predict other people's behaviors and ultimately to form social networks with other people. Um, In other words, if we can't draw upon something familiar, if we can't draw upon a stereotype that we're already comfortable with, is that going to impact people's ability to invest in other people? A
1: plea for closure. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> I, would, um, I would say um, that a lot of the problems are invented problems. I mean, take the Hutu-Tutsi issue again. It's not any more natural for someone to think himself to be a Hutu as opposed to a Rwandan as opposed to perhaps a Kegelian, if that's the city where it's from, or a human being. All these are perfectly natural. There's no difficulty in thinking about them. It's propaganda of the Hutu um, architects of violence, which make it sense everything else does matter. And there, we know the language. I, as a child, I still remember it. How can you talk about these complex things when our women are being raped and our men are being murdered? That battle cry has been defeated everywhere in the world. And that's a way of drowning your intelligence, your vision, and say, you know, that's the equivalent of saying the trunk of the elephant is the only thing, nothing else matters. And it's that that we have to resist. So I think, just as I was resisting earlier, of making it a complicated problem, it isn't a complicated problem to recognize our different identities. The fact that even though we may have, uh, Salman and I come a very big divisions like he comes from bombay i come from calcutta and hard to think of a bigger division but uh, and yet there are many other identities we we happen to share and there is nothing conflict about that so i would suggest that and i sympathize with your project i would i would argue that you have more I- things in your favor makes it easier for you and i to run together on that than we may think if we construct an artificial barrier as if we have to really fight a mountain there.
0: Well, I'm sorry to disappoint everyone, but this will have to be the last question.
2: Okay. Um, i mean I'm a medical student, which is just one of my many identities. So I we couldn't, couldn't, we couldn't hear, hear your sure. even your one
1: identity. So. One,
2: one of my many identities. Um, my question is, I was very similar to the last question about multiplicity of identities and... I guess it's basically, how do you balance a psychological need for belonging to a group and to feeling that importance while at the same time recognizing that, yes, I do have multiple identities, but I have a psychological need to feel like I belong. And regarding what you had talked about, um, Mr. Rushdie, about the flip that some people tend to do with murdering children one day and then working side by side another, um, again, there's that herd mentality, which is that, psychological issue, and I was just wondering what your perspective on, is on that subject.
1: I think this is a very, very difficult, uh, but very, very, very important question. There is no question that the, the communitarian pursuit of a singular identity is greatly helped by a sense of belonging that many people feel. I mean, I must say, I have never felt uh, one identity would be ever adequate for me. But uh, I know people who have a kind of sense of peace and quiet in just having one preeminent identity. It typically hits, hits like, like when you're 40 or 45 and suddenly you discover you're a member of a community and an enormous number of things come back which was not a part of your life. I think that's certainly a factor to be recognized. But then I, I don't think our ability to reason go away and it depends on, you know, there's nothing to indicate... That, that identity need drown other things. If you have a sense of community identity, that need not drown your political identity. Gandhi, for example, unlike me, was extremely religious Hindu, which Jinnah, who was wanting partition uh, for a Muslim Muslims in the subcontinent, was not. He ate pork and drank whiskey. At the same time, Despite that strong religious identity, which I believe in Gandhi's case was quite important, they did not in any way dim his insistence on secularism. Uh, We could argue what kind of secularism, was it adequate or not, but certainly he remained strongly secular. He did think that to think about religious identity in the political context would be a mistake. He also went specifically that the prayer meeting should never be political congress meeting, all personal prayer meetings at home. So I think it is possible to accommodate a sense of belonging which we need for many purposes and the human predicament is one of the reasons that predispose us to in that direction but it is by thinking and that's why I think thinking is so important is we could combine it with the all the other identity that we also have and if I may come back to Salman's thing Also, I know that after the Gujarat violence, for example, a lot of Indians who had moved, a lot of Hindus, who had been, there was a lot of flirting going on about this Hindu view of India. A lot of it, it peaked at that time. And yet, I think the sight of the violence, the riots, the bodies, pictures, including some that we saw, not as gruesome perhaps as the children that Salman was describing, or the kind of wake-up call of people, recognising that there is an other side to that identity of which you should be ashamed. Salman read that lovely passage saying we have to take responsibility, we have to be ashamed of it. And if you have a sense of belonging, and yet that belonging seems to also generate that violence, that belonging should suggest critical questions which we have to examine. So really I end up, I'm fed as a kind of groupie of reasoning and thinking rather than just feeling and letting go.
2: Salman, so, I must say, you did very well. Thank you. I, I must congratulate you. Thank you. And um, I remember. I remember when I, when I went off to university, my father told me, don't ever forget that the word
0: university comes from universe. This has given us, I think, a, a great amount of material to think about. It also has given us, I think, some solace in the notion that conversation matters. It reminds me of a wonderful line that Napoleon supposedly said of one of his generals. He said he knew everything but nothing else. Let us never fall into that. (laughs) Amatya Sen, Salman Rushdie, thank you very much.